Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas shape people. Ideas can change the world. I am, um, I ran across the other day an article and I had to look up the author. I want to know who the voice is behind the article. And I, I look I look on the profile of this woman, and the first thing she says about herself is she's a time traveler. Now, I don't know if the rest of you ever get to intersect with time travelers, but I never have. And I wanted to know more, especially after reading the article, because I, I suddenly started to grok, which is a rock, which is a term from a science fiction novel we all probably have read by Robert Heinlein. I wanted to know what it what this woman, why would she call herself a time traveler and wanted to find out more about what she calls creative courage. So I looked up Cindy Kuhn. Cindy is um, intersecting with our world in marvelous ways. She's part of uh, the PCI with uh, uh, the inventor of the internet, Vincent Cerf. She runs her own strategy and facilitation company called Laboratory 5. We'll learn more about that in a second. The article was co-written by a woman called Shannon Mullen O'Keefe, who, who has an interesting profile, too, called the Museum of Ideas. And you can see where this conversation is going to go pretty quickly. Cindy, great having you on the great conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to converse with you. You. Oh, and and by the way, for those of you 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 can't see our video, but Cindy's backdrop is the New Mexican mountains, uh, and and they're just beautiful. And she's right in the intersection of it. It looks like she's coming out of it in this profound metaphysical way. So the trying traveler is is surrounded by mountains. So let's have some fun, Cindy. First of all, uh, yeah. let's let's do a quick backdrop. Let's give some background. Tell us your journey a little bit professionally and personally and how it led to some of the things you're doing today. Yeah, I can give you a quick skip hop across my journey just so we have a sense of how does one time travel. So I was born and raised in Michigan, so Midwestern girl at heart, and then moved out to the western desert of Phoenix for the second quarter of my life where I was trained in fine arts. So my degrees are fine art creativity, but with a bit of a twist, I will just say back then I was already doing something that I was getting in lots of trouble during school for trying to invent things that didn't exist. And so I was working on a type of degree that didn't have a name yet, it does now, it's called social practice. And that began me on a journey of being very human centric. And so my company has had many iterations. I've done a lot of different things because creative entrepreneurship is a long and early passion of mine. So I taught and wrote a lot. I have a book out about that too, that just helps creatives understand that I can talk you through how to do things, but it's really about courage and it's about confidence. And so when I started to really discover that, it helped me to see the way that people really move forward is it begins with a knowledge and a confidence about 
one's own mindset and ability. So I started to meet a lot of people at the intersection of science and arts and design. And I started to work with a lot of folks working in futures mashed up with creativity, imagination. And that led me to, in 2017, I met a gentleman named Brian David Johnson, who invented the process of threat casting. And he was at the time at Intel, the chip company, and realized this was a methodology that should be used by the government and military to look forward 10 years into the future and make really big choices and decisions. And so he left Intel and we met up and we had a completely unified mindset and we stood up the threat casting lab, which exists at Arizona State University. And there we do all of the threat-based work. So that's the dark stuff. And additionally, I have the Applied Futures Lab, which does a combination of future casting and threat casting. So my creative background, my producing background, a long time teaching and facilitating leads me to where I am now, which is applied experiential futures. So it's that hands-on teaching training stuff that I love so much that I can never leave that I'm now back at after years of kind of ducking under and conducting research. I'm ready to pop back up and do some training again. So that's, that's kind of the journey of how does one become a futurist it's a social science practice. It also requires creativity. And it's it's a training that can be shared and learned and it's out there for everyone. So it's a pretty exciting space to be in. One of, uh, as you know, Cindy, um, we talked before we started this podcast. Um, I have spent a lot of time in the risk resilience and security industry. And uh, they're tasked with securing the human and material assets of a company and mitigating risks. Um, and um, interesting enough, the idea of protective intelligence is um, becoming more and more fundamental to that role because at one point, this is where Vincent Cerf comes in, at one point, we had a lot of information, but we captured it in Excel spreadsheets and sticky notes. And we had analysts who would dig up on their files and try to cast what is coming ahead to mitigate risk, right? But now we're starting, and this is where it intersects with you, we're starting to leverage data science and even machine learning and AI to more rapidly consume that sensor-driven data, uh, both um, captive and public domain that can give us more of an indication what threats are coming at us. Okay, so there's there's that technology shift in the way we think about our jobs in the idea uh, in risk resilience and security, right? So here you are bringing one other element into it. And I find it just fascinating because you know, in the risk resilience security industry, we're, we're talking cut and dry here. These are warriors, you know, that that are trying to defend 
a fortress called their company. These are warriors. And yet you have this element that you can tease out that said it's not just about the data science. It's not just about leveraging data and forecasting threats, but there's this other side of you we need to explore, and that is the ideation side. How can we take your creativity and your people's creativity and the surrounding ecosystem you live in and leverage it for strategic advantage, both in human potential and in corporate potential? Tell me how you're being received in that, right? How are you being received in that kind of ecosystem? Well, it's received well, and I'll tell you why specifically, is because the piece that you didn't mention, which is at the heart of my practice, um, I mentioned, you know, I'm incredibly human-centric. So what that means is the element I'm bringing that is often forgotten when we're conducting tabletop exercises, research, or fieldwork is the element of real empathy. And so in my practice, we have participants build a person in a place experiencing an event. We ask them to invest time in it. They know all about Betty Sue Ann's family in Iowa and how she's fourth generation and she's real proud of her work in the community. They have invented the ecosystem around this human being, all of their companions, how things work in their community, their connections, outer reaching. Then if we're doing threat casting, we ask them to turn. And now we're asking them to wear the hat of the adversary and attempt to destroy Betty Sue Ann's life. Well, they are very invested and they are very empathetic towards her success. So they are going to do everything in their power to figure out what kind of darkness could they unleash upon her and her community so that they've pre-figured out before they leave the room, how might they disrupt, mitigate, and potentially have to recover from this adversarial event that they unleashed upon her. And because of that, because it's all about empathy towards humanity, it brings in an element that requires people to go even deeper than a traditional tabletop scenario planning exercise where you kind of think about, okay, Betty's in Iowa, she's got a couple kids, and then we move right on and we get on to the next stuff. In threat casting and future casting, you sit in the pocket of the human a lot. You go back and visit. And then when we're in the back casting part where we work from the future backwards to today, we are again having all of these interactions that require empathy we're building up actions in through flags and gates so that we know if something happens what do you do that requires what do you do for betty sue ann as well so you know we have all kinds of ways that we help people understand the impact of the work that they're going to bring with us how does that affect an actual human even if you are inventing it on the spot as an exercise during that experience, you know these people. They are your aunts. They are your relatives. And so that's really the difference. And the other piece is I like to kind of give folks a spectrum of where does this work that I'm involved in land. So if you start on one end with strategic planning, 
And then you move next to foresight tools. So you know what strategic work does. And then foresight tools bring in ways to look into the future, but they only give you the gaze into the future. They don't give you the applied pieces necessarily. And so then you come into future casting, threat casting, the back casting space. And that I like to tell people is like, imagine we're, we're putting a film together. When you're in this space of future casting, threat casting, together what we're doing is we're writing the script. We're developing the narrative, the shared narrative around this potential experience. And then we're going to hand off that narrative to the world builders. And then they're going to go and do their world building. And then they're going to hand their work off to the real life or war gaming. Um, and so that's kind of the difference of what, what does this add? It adds narrative, but not my, just my narrative or yours, but a shared narrative that is worked on over the course of this exercise so that the pieces are considered. But number one, it's the empathy towards the humans. Here's what I find fascinating about that. One, like I said before, you actually explained your work. You're, you're, you're actually getting them to understand with empathy, that is essentially a living in another person's shoes as a way to extrapolate and unleash the creative potential of their work, which is just amazing. Mm -hmm. But something else is happening here because we also are starting, this has just happened over the last five, 10 years too, we're starting to realize that narrative or the power of story influences people oh. all over the world. I mean, the threat actors of Russia right now, watching them tell their narrative to their people and uh, is, is incredible. So if you're doing the deep work of foresight and threat analysis and what could be coming at you, it's, it's also learning to share with empathy the narrative of the enemy. Well, you know, and it's interesting because I have done a great deal of work in the what most people refer to as the misinformation space. Um, it's actually three spaces. It really is important to distinguish. It's misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation because they each do very different things. And what it has collapsed into that has become so clear through our research and other people's research as well. We're not the only ones, but this sort of collective body of knowledge is that that space has really become information disorder as an actual, um, you know, classified, you're able to see when information disorder happens. It's much easier because we also have those wonderful little information disorder machines that we all carry around. And, you know, what that really looks like is a shared narrative, even in a small rural community, is all that's necessary. It's all it takes. There isn't a need for a global perspective if that local community is tight. So, you know, another thing we say at the lab all the time is no matter what you're looking at researching, it doesn't matter. We're actually completely content agnostic. You can put anything into this methodology, but what we can tell you every single time is the future is local. 
And so you can't do this giant global understanding of anything. And it has to do with the corollary between the narrative. So you can't lay out anything that's going to work on scale until you have the pillars from each localized community that then network together to build up work. There is no other way because the future is local and the local decides. And that's about narrative. You know, what I, um, what I find fascinating about that, and gosh, I hope people are, this is gold. For those of you who are in the business of helping human beings and their tribes, if you will, whether they're corporations or uh, nonprofits or whatever, thrive, um, these so-called pillars, I, I, call it, I call it global local. The local will be where actions begin and they will begin to intersect together to create a global phenomenon, right? And that's how we see cultures changing the world in my opening address with the great conversation. Ideas matter. They're activated by leaders, probably at a local level, starting very small and begin to intersect throughout the ecosystem until, of course, that's the prevailing culture, until it changes again, which it will always change, right? So fascinating, because I've been doing that. You articulated so much better, but I've been doing that for years in uh, in uh, helping um, corporations thrive and become more strategically valuable. But you're doing it from, you're taking leaders and getting them down to at elemental level, mm -hmm. they're used exactly. to they're used to thinking up here, right? They're used to thinking up here in the broad strategic strokes, and you bring them down to an elemental level through this narrative of the person who captures the story. Yeah, and I'll tell you one really fun thing that I always get now people are catching up. <clears throat> Over the last seven years, I've had a really good time. It doesn't matter what I cast or future cast. It really does not matter. I can tell you all across the map, I will have one outcome that always comes every single time, no matter the content. And I will tell the sponsors, you are going to have a, a potential threat slash opportunity. I can tell you right now it's coming. And sometimes they'll say, nope, we know all our threats. We feel really good about this. Or they'll say, we think the threat set is in this whole lane. And, and I'll chuckle because we always find new things. But also the one thing that I've seen that I think is a really important conversation for everyone, not just the space, is when we look into the future at threats and opportunities, it's the biggest thing that comes up no matter what is workforce every single time. And why does that come up every single time? It's because that is the one place people feel comfortable talking about humans. Okay, so we have to have workers. So we'll bring up workforce, we understand the workforce. But the other reason that's coming up is because we are in such a radical shift that every single industry, every industry is in turmoil right now of you know, what do we do? And if we have honest conversations about what's coming in the future, which I'm very comfortable sharing because I think it's important that people be not afraid of it, but revel in opportunity instead, which is 
most of the conveniences of your world in the next 10 to 20 years will absolutely be automated. You just, we're not going to have McDonald's with humans. We're not going to have gas stations with humans, convenience stores, even grocery stores for the most part. Now there will still be humans in the building because, you know, we still can't quite get that hash brown machine right. So somebody's got to be back in there turning them just right. So they go down. So there's always somebody in the building, but I think I hear, and with chat GPT, I hear, you know, just a lot of angst and, you know, robots taking over the world. I like to remind people um, they're not sentient, you know, they're not even chat is even being Sydney's not sentient. It's just programming. We can unplug, we can pull the plugs, we can turn the lights if we get too uncomfortable. But the biggest thing is there is tons of opportunity for efficiency and convenience in our life. And I think chat is a really good example of there will be a lot of people who used to do tasks like writing press releases and things like that, that will go away. That's just not going to happen anymore. We don't need that anymore. But think about all of the opportunity for people to be more aligned in the things they're actually interested in. The big sweep that's happening right now too is in education you know, a giant discussion across all lanes of what are we going to do? You know, K-12 is broken. Does everybody really need to go to college and have this student loan expense? What can we do to fire back up tech schools and vocational schools? Because what we really need right now are welders and electricians and plumbers really, really need that. And it's just not being supported and celebrated. So that piece for me is always really interesting because it comes in no matter what I'm being asked to look at. So you know that there's a giant human shift because everybody ends up asking even when they don't mean to. So that's just a piece that I'm particularly wild about rabbit holing down because it's, where's it gonna go? What's, what's gonna happen, you know? It's fascinating. Well, what we do know, right? is the only constant in life is change. And uh, when new technology comes out, whether it's automobiles replacing cars or you know the internet displacing phones, um, we are in, where we always as human beings look back and say, I like the world better and safer <laughs> because I grew up with these tools, right? And so it's always a disruption. It's a disruption when we get, when, when I've spent my whole life learning a skill and suddenly disrupted by technology. It's, it's right. But, but I'm a root cause kind of guy. So I always try to get back to root causes. You know, I'm sitting there looking at the education system today and looking at the strategic organizational outcome we try to achieve through educating our young. And we know they're coming out without the life skills to deal with this change. We just know it's root cause. They're, they're not coming out with life skills to deal with change. They're being taught by the current, and I always call them priests, because throughout history, there's always been a class of people who controlled the information, right? So the priests of education are teachers who are now threatened by a new tool. Instead of embracing it and teaching the kids how to use it responsibly, right? So we've got this root cause going on. You see it everywhere. Um, and so 
what you said, I, I want everyone to hear this thing that they don't skip over. Without threats, you don't get opportunities. Without risks, you don't get opportunities. We have to teach people how to navigate between those two things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it just doesn't exist. I mean, we live, we don't live in a bubble. You know, any of us have threats any given day just existing in our own home. We're filled, we're surrounded by possible threats. The minute we step foot out, it just, it the multipliers are exponential. It just goes on and on. And some people are completely frozen by that fear. And right now there is a lot of energy about fear and shutdown and us and them, and I'm frozen and I don't know what to do. But the truth is these foresight tools and future casting into back casting have existed since World War II. And, you know, it's part of the problem is we don't share it with the public. So that's why I'm really fired up about having a personal mission to make sure that if nothing else, everyone I come across, anything I can do to express how to use these tools, because they're very useful in everyone's individual life, because what it really does this is one thing I like to say to folks. So when I'm doing a large scale exercise for the government, I'm going to spend months interviewing subject matter experts that the team has determined. These are the people who might have some insight and some knowledge that we could use to build our narratives off of. When you're doing this as an individual, you are the subject matter expert of your own life. You know the most. You are the best. You are the one to ask. And then the next thing to make this happen so that you aren't paralyzed by fear is you have to build your tools, resources, and people. You cannot go anything alone. So even if you design the perfect, I'm going to do this five years from now, and you buy the software, you get the tools, you get yourself all set up. If you don't have people in place who support you, the likelihood of your outcome landing where you hope it will is lessened. So that's the other big, big piece of if you're surrounded by fear or you, you can't move forward because of whatever reason, find people. And like you and I, you reached out to me on LinkedIn and I said, yes, let's have a conversation. That's the other piece is I think people imagine people have some barrier. Yes, there are certain folks who their schedules are just too busy, but you know, most of us just want to talk to other people too. We want to learn from other people too. And so I find that people always ask me like, God, how do you get these subject matter experts to call you? It's like, People want to talk, it turns out. People want to learn from each other and find out things. And that's a big, big thing. So, you know, you got to get your tools, you got to get your timing, and you got to get your team. And that's what helps you get out of the funk and move to where you want to go next. If I'm, uh, um, I introduced an organizational psychologist, one of the top 30, into a discussion with the chief security officer and leaders in the risk resilience security industry. Because um, what happened is I had a revelation one day um, and the revelation was they had spent all their time on corporate risk and, but they hadn't dealt with their own personal risk. That is 
think about they live in darkness every day. So I kind of asked the question, how do you, how are you managing that darkness? Now, let me bring that around to what we're talking about. I, um, I am, I firmly believe there's this need to teach leadership capacity and education at a very young age. And I think you resonate with that because you talk about everyone is exceptional in their own way and in the right place, right? You talk about that a lot. And even the fact where you started off this podcast talking about creating a narrative around a real person so that they could extrapolate to larger strategies in the future, that, that's just an amazing approach, an empathetic approach. And so what we're dealing with now is this idea of building leadership capacity as a tool very early on and taking personal responsibility over your happiness and joy in life. It's no one else's job. It's no one else's job. And, and you're, you're taking what blows me away on why this is you know, a very small amount of time to get in your head is you're dealing with all these variables that at the end of the day, go to human flourishing. That's what you're doing. You're, it, you know, you're, you're over here and over there and over there, but they all add up to this human flourishing. And we could just bottle that up somehow and, and begin to institutionalize it in our own culture. I think, I think we, we'd be looking at a, a different era ahead of us. Yeah, well, you know, so two things I will come back to. You mentioned um, cool abilities, which is the other area I love to talk about all day, an area of research I've been running down for the last few years, and we can talk about that. But the first thing I want to mention is there are other lots of other people who are thinking in this way, too. Uh, as an example, IEEE, if you're familiar, which is the yes. Engineering Association, which is the largest membership association in the world. It's million plus strong of engineers worldwide of every discipline of engineers. Um, I do a lot of work with IEEE. I am not an engineer, but I we have a lot of other kindred alignment. And so just to give an example, I'm actually the co-chair of a committee for IEEE called Human Wisdom and Culture that is related to their Planet Positive 2030 initiative, which is to, much like the UN Sustainability Goals, which you know took years to get the whole world to agree upon, this is the initial kickoff to get the whole world to agree upon sustainability standards so that we don't just slap sustainable this and that on products and people get away with it worldwide or say they're participating in sustainability practices without these standards. So there's a large body of people worldwide writing these standards right now. And the committee I'm on is not focused on, you know, let, let's say standards for products or lakes or streams. My committee is focused on indigenous wisdom. And so ensuring that as standards, goals, and anything of that nature that moves forward globally, we do a very conscious check-in that those align with indigenous wisdom and practices globally. And why that's really important is because the future is designed by everyone. And we've learned 
that if the future is designed by a select few, there's not space for everyone. So you have to consider that wisdom. And so I will say there's a lot of hopefulness just because this is something that isn't really out. And this is just one example of individuals who are really focused on the wisdom of humanity and ensuring that it's showing up in things that we all adopt as standards. That's one thing I really wanted to mention that I'm, I'm really passionate about making sure that that presence is known in, in work going forward and supporting sponsors and clients through that. You know, the other thing about the, the practice that I have is it's incredibly diverse, not just of background. So when I'm putting together an exercise, when I'm interviewing subject matter experts, all of my work requires extreme diversity, and that is uh, of background, but also of, of gender, of age, which we ask not by asking someone their age, but we say, what generation do you feel you are a part of? And that's enough. And we ask for diversity of domain, so industries people are a part of. We asked for diversity of thought. So that means things like I can't have a room. I, it might look diverse if I peek in through the door, but then I might find out everybody went to the same five Ivy League schools. That is also a, a, not a productive experience. So then that, because I'm so focused and I can tell you the future is far more diverse and everyone just jump on board because that's where we, that's where we live in the future. It leads me into the work around cool abilities. And just for your audience, I'll give a explainer of what is that. So cool abilities is a term coined by a group of individuals about a decade ago, Vint Cerf was one of them where they really looked at the workforce already understanding and acknowledging that we have a problem. We are lacking workers in every nook and cranny. So why don't we reevaluate how we look at human capacity, potential, and opportunity and say, what if instead those who were considered historically to have what we use the term of disabling conditions, and we put them in very limited work opportunities. Now what we are learning, and we have much, much more to learn, which is why I want everyone to start researching this area. I'm very on fire for people to jump in and give us more data, because there's it's a small community in this space, but there's enough to really understand that First of all, our neurodivergent spectrum of humans is increasing constantly. And so the scale of those on the spectrum is exponential year by year. Right now we're at 44 out of every 100 males born in the United States will be on the spectrum of autism as one example. And what does that mean then? So if more and more human beings are being born onto this planet who have neurodivergencies. I know a lot of people like to imagine, well, it's just because we're testing now. It's just because we know more. It isn't. There are more humans coming into this planet who have unique and special abilities that we're now recognizing, which we've always had. 
And we've cast aside our fellow humans who had quirks and things that didn't quite fit into our conformity. And now what we're discovering that is if you have a neurodivergency, it's very highly likely that you may have something on the opposite end that could be considered a superpower. I also want to mention this is not true with everyone. So if you're looking at your cousin with autism, do not start to go through their uh, being to find their superpower because it isn't everyone, but it is a lot of human beings who have a cool ability that comes with their formally known as their disability. And looking at those, why is that important? Why do we care? Why, why should this be researched? Because what if we eliminate our unnecessary jobs, such as checking out a cashier, checking you out at a convenience store or a gas station. Now we have all of these individuals. And if we had a way to assess radically different than our education system does now, we would know when people had early interesting dispositions. And instead of penalizing them as the education system does now, we would celebrate it, enhance it, and enable it on purpose. And that's the notion behind cool abilities and the workforce of the future is with, and you can already see it with this generation Z, the youngest generation, they, their process of getting to non-binary they are not interested in our male female binary that can be correlated with what's coming in the future because this generation just wants binary neutrality for the every human being they meet they're also going to want it in all the other capacities they're not going to appreciate labels of oh this person does this because they have this disability this classification that is going to wash away and so when we start to look at every human we say oh wow you have this really unique ability to do this thing why don't we let you do that thing while not trying to make you do a bunch of other tasks inside employment that are a total waste of your time because they're not your unique brilliance. That's where we're headed because we don't have a choice. We're going to have to start looking at every human uniquely because the jobs are going to be so radically different than everything we have right now. We can't just shove people in anonymous jobs because they won't exist. Thank you for doing that. This, um, I said the other uh, last night to a friend of mine, you know, you become old when you start wishing for something that happened in the past instead of embracing the future. And, mm -hmm. and my daughter said to me the other day, because I was talking about personal pronouns, and going, I, I, I can't get my head around it. I'm generationally having a hard time getting around it. And she goes, well, you have to get your head around it because this is the world your grandkids are going to be living in. But you just stated it in a way I've never heard it before. And that is the Gen Z. I'm going to put it in my own words and correct me if I get you wrong. Gen Z, Z is trying to go beyond labels that have constrained our ability to think outside boxes of norms that we've had in the past and release their full potential. Is, is, that, is that a good way to summarize? It is, and then I'll add a, a, a why for you. Okay. Why are they doing that? 
why do they see the world that way different than us why are they suddenly doing this yeah it is because they are pluralists we are not gen z and beyond will forever ever they're digital uh they didn't come they're natives they were born into it and so because we came of age where you know first we had the computer and we had a little on ramp with that and then we had some you know, tablets, and then we had some phones, and now we're having AI really enter our lives. We're we're having to go, okay, this is new. Let me get this. They just showed up in the world and it already existed. So because of that, they're not singular like us. So if I'm going to go learn chat GPT, I'm going to go on my computer like this, and I'm going to study it. I'm going to really figure it out. And then I'm going to go read articles, and then I'm going to go listen to podcasts, and then I'm going to go watch videos, and then I'm going to go. They will be doing all of those things at once. So in one earbud, they've got a podcast going about it while they're on the computer, while on this screen over here, a, a documentary YouTube's going on about it. And then they've got a stack of books that you know they're gonna grab and go. It's that pluralistic understanding of Gen Z is why they're not interested in our narrative, black and white focus, and they think we're ridiculous because it's unnecessary. Why can't you have everything all at once, all at the same time? And that's how they were born. And, what and we're we, not going to change it. And then we try to force them into our norms. So we go, okay, put your phones down. Turn them off. No. I want you to no. focus on me. <laughs> they are focused. They can be on their phone, have the TV running, stereo no. going, and hear everything you said. Because that's how they're built. And so because of that, you better get on the train or you're obsolete in a minute because they rule and it's, it's very radically different than, you know, how you wanted to rebel against your parents. And I wanted to rebel against my parents and how, you know, as a Gen X, or I think about boomers, or I think about millennials or whatever, doesn't matter. All of that is behavioral constructs. It's very, very important to understand that with this group, they're wired. So they have behavior plus they're plugged. So you just heard the great why. And it wasn't, it, she could have gone there. If I asked about pronouns, she could have gone to another box called LGBTQ. She could have gone to that. You could have gone to that. But you went to root cause. You went to the why. These are pluralists. Forget the, all the other outcomes. Forget the other identities. These are pluralists in so many, in all the phases of our life. And we, we need to navigate the emerging culture. And we need to do it with empathy. This has been a oh. great conversation, Cindy Cohn. And I, it will not end here. You have such a vast network connection. You built such a fantastic ecosystem. I am so excited for you and your participation in our world. Thank you, Cindy Kuhn. Thank you for having me. What a delightful conversation. I could sit with you for many more hours. It's a treat. Well, it doesn't have to be one and done. We'll, we will revisit this. We'll uh, there are some things we'll talk about offline that I think are great on-ramps, and we'll, we'll find a way. But Cindy Kuhn, you're amazing. Thank you so much.